0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Why is Heritage Radio Network important to you?
2: HRN is very nostalgic to go into because it's really the only place that you have this really warm, homey Experience to watch people get together and talk about the things that really make a difference. It's really fun when I ask guests, Do you want to be on Heritage? and they're like, Albertas, yes,
0: 100%. I believe that we all are really trying to bring people together.
3: I
4: think getting more people excited about good local, well crafted food and away from big ag and tasteless commodity food is so important
2: kind of an honor to be sitting there with somebody in a space where so many other people have sat
1: join HRN's vibrant community of thoughtful eaters become a member today go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate
5: I'm basing things on to a large degree my own taste so I'm never going to be you know it's like what what tastes good to me may not taste good to you and that's just the kind of the, the bottom line everyone has strong opinions about food whether the argument
6: is about the taste of a restaurant meal or the quality of a city's signature pizza, people's passions can flare up hotter than a brick oven when they disagree about what they eat. This week, we talk about food feuds cooked up by everyone from Yelp critics to mysterious fictional murderers. I'm Katie Moseman Wadler, and this is Meat and Three.
4: Meat and Three.
2: Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meet and three. One meat, three sides.
4: Food, news, and storytelling.
2: A square meal for your ears. Meat and three.
6: First up is Jessica Kreinchich, who takes us into the world of food murder fiction, full of clam chowder feuds and bodies caught on lobster traps.
7: Wasn't it C.S. Lewis who said that eating and reading are two pleasures that combine admirably? First, sharing a meal is such a basic human connection. Uh, When you bring characters together to share a meal, and when one is murdered, it's shocking. It's much more shocking than if the murder takes place in an office, for example. It's breaking a social contract in a way. This is Sherry Randall, author of the Lobster Shack Mystery Series.
8: Titles include Curses Boiled Again, Against the Claw, and Drawn and Buttered, it's a murder mystery series with an important addition,
7: food. My Lobster Shack series is a, is a fish-out-of-water story, really. It stars Allie Larkin. She's a ballerina just reaching the height of her profession when she breaks her ankle in a mysterious fall. And she goes back home to Mystic Bay, Connecticut, where her aunt owns the Lazy Mermaid Lobster Shack. And while she heals, Allie discovers that she has a talent for solving murders.
8: You might think murder and food is a strange pairing, but Sherry's Lobster Shack Mysteries are part of the cozy mystery genre, and more specifically, the culinary cozy subgenre, which is wildly popular among mystery readers.
7: Welcome to the cozy side. That's where we all are. <laughs> We're sort of the palate cleanser when you've had too much of the grizzly stuff. Come on over and uh, read something that's a little bit less gory. We still have plenty of murder, but, you know, just... Not quite as much gore. The cozy is a story that generally has these elements an amateur sleuth and a closed circle of suspects. And for culinary cozies, of course, you have the food element, a setting where the protagonist works with food in some way. To outsiders of the cozy mystery universe, this might seem like merely added
8: texture in the framework of the murder mystery. But Sherry explained that the food angle is one of
7: the most crucial factors in world building for a culinary cozy. In the Culinary Cozy, it plays a huge role. It's the what we call the hook or the framework for the story. Um, and the plot springs from that. For example, uh, my, cu- my characters have discovered dead bodies caught on lobster traps. They've dealt with rivals trying to steal chowder recipes. And uh, one book had a poisoning at a Food Network-style Best Lobster Roll competition. Um, you create this world around that, that hook, that food hook. I think that... So many people are interested in food these days. That's what they're looking for. You know, are they looking for a setting that's a winery, for example, or an organic farm? And there are, there are series with those elements. Um, do they want to get into the wor- world of Cajun cooking, for example? There are books with those kind of things. With my books, I wanted to have that vacation feeling that you get when you go to a lobster shack. I mean, generally that's when you go, it's when you're on vacation and you want that New England feeling. So the food and its setting really plays a huge role.
8: For those looking for the intrigue of mystery while escaping into a field they're passionate about, The Culinary Cozy offers a unique experience to the reader. But the food doesn't just stay on the page as a plot point. Actual recipes are included in these novels so that the reader can enjoy the same food that they're reading about.
7: Absolutely. There are recipes in the books. And I actually got dinged once because I didn't have a recipe in one book. So I learned my lesson, including the recipe in this type of book really brings the world of your story um, to your readers. And I often hear from readers that they've tried the recipe that I had in the book, and then they read it, you know, and while they were eating, for example, I have a chowder recipe in one book. And they enjoyed the chowder while they were reading the book. And it just, you know, made this sensory experience that brought the book to life in a a different way. And another unique aspect of the culinary cozy is the consistent use of food-related puns in their titles. When I got the title for my first book, Curses, Boiled Again, I fell off my chair laughing. It's just so crazy. Uh, I think the titles are a signal to the reader. They're a little wink that it's okay, you won't have your soul dragged through the mud with this book. Um, There is some humor, there are some light moments. Lighthearted yet compelling, The Culinary Cozy takes the traditional murder mystery and spins it in a
8: way that can be a satisfying fantasy to many a reader. I
7: think there's also this element of a wish fulfillment. I think there are so many people who would like to work in that culinary world they'd like to own a restaurant or a winery or a bakery or be a personal chef or a caterer, a culinary cozy gives you a chance to step into that world and kind of live in it for a little while. To immerse yourself in the delicious crossover of
8: food and murder, check out Sherry Randall's Lobster Shack Mystery Series wherever you buy books.
6: Next, H. Conley takes us behind the scenes of a complicated and sometimes contentious relationship dynamic, chefs versus restaurant critics.
9: Restaurant reviews are entertaining. They can set a scene in a glamorous dining room so well you can almost taste the complex tiny plates, or they can tear apart every detail of a disappointing meal and make you cringe at the rude server. Those of us who don't get paid to eat at expensive restaurants around New York might look enviously at the reviewers whose opinions are read by people across the country. But what is it like to pass this kind of judgment? And what is it like to have someone criticize your business so publicly? I wanted to dig deep into the relationship between chefs and critics, so I spoke to some experts on the subject. Let's start with a chef.
10: I'm Peter Hoffman, uh, a chef here in New York City, where I ran two restaurants, Savoy, and then Back Forty and Back Forty West.
9: Peter's restaurants were reviewed many times during the nearly three decades he was a restaurateur. There were the reviewers who came in ready to have a new experience, and there were those, like Pete Wells, who came in with a preconceived idea of what they wanted to write. Wells is the critic for the New York Times and is notorious for his scathing reviews.
10: You know, you can find the facts to support the narrative that you're trying to tell as opposed to continuing to be open to the experience. And when I opened Back 40 West, he decided that lots of people out there in the world were doing multiple restaurants and they weren't always doing it well. And he was going to test that thesis on our restaurant. So he wrote a double review um, of the two restaurants. And he liked the new restaurant, and he kicked pretty hard the older restaurant.
9: In contrast, Frank Bruni, another Times critic, loved Savoy.
10: He came in and he completely got what the restaurant was about and how the marketplace had changed, but that we were still out there being who we were, doing what we do. It was a very deep appreciation and and understanding of who we were, so that felt great.
9: One of Peter's major gripes has to do with when critics decide to review restaurants.
10: Because of all the interest and the pressure to be part of the scene and be part of the cutting edge that critics go to restaurants too early in their evolution, and um, it takes a long time for a new business to shake out. I kind of developed my own rule that I didn't want to eat in any restaurant that hadn't been open for at least six months, because I think it takes that long to figure out not only how to do a good job, but what is the job that you're really trying to take on.
9: Wells reviewed Back 40 when it had been open for less than two months, but critics aren't always able to decide when they review a restaurant. This is food writer and former restaurant critic for Time Out New York, Daniel Meyer, not to be confused with restaurateur Danny Meyer.
4: The reviews that I wrote were largely of sort of like new, buzzy, kind of like very talked about restaurants. I'd go a couple times. I'd start going like six weeks after the restaurant opened, which is like very, very soon. That's not long enough to like get a restaurant really up and running, but that was kind of the time frame of like when readers would would want or need to hear about um, a place. So like I have a lot of respect for for chefs and for people that own restaurants. It's a hell of a lot harder than writing a review about uh, about one. I think it goes for criticism of of really any anything. One side of the equation is is really putting themselves out there to create something that they think is worthwhile that they want to last that they want people to to love and it's the you know it's the job of the it's the job of the critic to assess it as even-handedly as possible and sort of come down on one side or the other
9: critics have to consider their readers as well as the chefs they're discussing in order to be a trustworthy critic objectivity and fairness have to be forefront in their minds
5: objectivity in the context of restaurant criticism is like kind of a moving target or a slippery fish, if, if you will. I mean, it's like I can't be completely objective. I'm, I'm, you know, basing things on just to a large degree my own taste. This is
9: Hannah Goldfield, the restaurant critic for the New Yorker.
5: I, I try to educate myself and also just be thorough in in general. I guess I would say so that I'm, I'm just doing a really complete job of explaining why I liked or didn't like something and putting it in, in context. I wouldn't pan a place that I felt like couldn't handle it. If there's like a small restaurant with owned by a chef who's like really trying to make it and he's not that famous and I hate the restaurant, I'm not going to write about the restaurant because it's like, why would I tell people not to go somewhere that they're not going to go anyway? Whereas if there's like a big buzzy opening and it's a big celebrity restaurateur and he has 40 restaurants and there's a certain kind of promise being made, or if there's just like, if it's just in like really bad taste or something, then that that's when I'll feel comfortable enough to
9: really be really negative. It's a very one-sided relationship. There isn't much a chef can do to respond to a critic. But for chefs, professional reviewers might be the lesser of two evils in the Yelp era.
10: They have tremendous power, although maybe less power today than they did 20 years ago, they were the only game in town. And uh, so they wielded far greater power. Now, I'm not a fan of Yelp, because if that's democratization, I'll, I, I don't need it. So there's something to be said for a particular person going around and saying, this is what it looks like to me. This is what my experience was. And um, I have some education or some credentials that allow me to speak about what I'm speaking about.
9: It's important to get to know a reviewer, which you can't do when scrolling through Yelp. The anonymity allows people to say whatever they want, and a few too many one-star reviews can spell the end for a restaurant. Part of the relationship is that you develop a
5: relationship, and so you know a reader can learn about a critic and learn how to sort of, like, where their tastes lie
9: Versus the critics. Everyone I spoke to agreed that it's important to have a relationship with whoever you look to for advice about restaurants. It could be a critic, but it could just as soon be your friend.
10: We have to find our people, and our people tell us where they've eaten and what their experience has been, and those critics are far more useful to me than the ones who are doing it in a professional kind of way.
9: So whether you read reviews for the drama or for actual recommendations, Keep in mind that critics are just people with opinions. How much weight you give them is up to you. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after this short break.
2: You listen to Heritage Radio Network because, let's face it, you have really good taste. You care about where your food comes from, who made it, and its impact on the planet. Whether you're looking for an inspiring interview with your favorite celebrity chef the latest on Dave Arnold's all, or if you want to get down and dirty with some agricultural policy, we've got you covered. Ten years in and 13,000 episodes later, HRN continues to be the go-to media outlet for thoughtful eaters, like you. And we never could have done it without the support of our listeners. Help Food Radio continue in the future and help us raise enough funds for the year to come. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate today. And since you've got such good taste, we have some very cool member gifts for you to choose from. Thanks for listening and for being a part of the HRN community.
6: Now we turn to a local feud in HRN's neighborhood of Bushwick, Brooklyn, about gentrification, It's a story that's been told many times over and a battle fought throughout the history of New York City between people fighting to preserve their neighborhood and those who hope to capitalize on new development projects. In episode 33 of Bushwick Podcast, Luke Griffin spoke with activist Nancy Torres about how new initiatives to rezone the neighborhood are contributing to the erasure of the cultural landscape. This episode is a timely addition to the recent conversation about rezoning in Brooklyn, a study published last week examines two major redevelopment projects in Park Slope and Williamsburg. It definitely proves that despite upticks in population in those areas, there was a major decrease in Black and Latina residents during the time of redevelopment. This story, of course, includes Bushwick food culture, the street vendors, bodegas, local restaurants, and neighborhood barbecues that make up this dynamic corner of Brooklyn.
1: Nancy Torres is part of the team behind Mikasa Casa Casa, a group working to stop gentrification in Bushwick and around the city.
11: So my name is Nancy Torres. Uh, I grew up in Bushwick, and I recently joined Mi Casa no es Su Casa. Mi Casa no Su Casa is an artist and anti-gentrification collective. So we're using art as a a weapon of to call out gentrification, to talk about anti-capitalism, to talk about Uh, the specific issues that are affecting brown and black folks, and that is all tied to gentrification.
1: One of the most contentious aspects of the Department of City Planning's plans here in Bushwick is something called upzoning, a type of rezoning that allows for taller, denser buildings in the community.
11: So it's not just a building. It's like people think of it here, okay, 16 stories, it'll be too high, um, you know, why not? It'll create more space, but it's not just a building. You're blocking who's going to be in those buildings. You are allowing for, you have a very specific focus who you want in this community. And third is by doing those first two things or in allowing those first two things, you no longer have the community that created this community. So that culture, that cultura that makes Bushwick is no longer here. You know, it's been black, brown, and then my family is Mexicana, and I just remember so many folks and so many bodegas were puertorriqueños. and uh, you see a lot of street vendors that are Ecuadorian, and it's just so many different things and different uh, institutions, like like these bodegas and that make the culture and so many black parties and so many barbecues on the street, and all of that will be gone.
1: In other words, on paper, People who are in favor of rezoning may argue that it creates opportunities for affordable housing. But in practice, in places like Williamsburg, we've seen that communities of color and low- and middle-income communities are typically disadvantaged in the process.
11: Are completely disadvantaged. Completely.
1: Perhaps the biggest difference between Mikasa Sukasa and other organizations involved in the conversation around rezoning is that Mikasa believes a truly equitable process simply can't take place within the city's power structures as they currently exist.
11: You know, if we continue to believe that these institutions can change, um, we will become stagnant and we'll actually not even, we won't even be here to become stagnant. We need community creating decisions for us. Yeah, we need folks who are actually building in these neighborhoods to be making those decisions about the neighborhood.
6: As community leaders, Nancy Torres and Mikasa Noes Sukasa continue to educate their neighbors and ask more from their local nonprofits. Their voices remain important to the preservation of dynamic culture here in our neighborhood. To hear more of Luke's conversation with Nancy, listen to episode 33 of Bushwick Podcast on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. For our final story this week, Kevin Chang Barnum unravels a tale of two cities as he delves deep into one of the world's most
2: contentious food rivalries. It's like lasagna, right? It's like bready
8: lasagna.
1: Deep dish pizza is if pie and pizza had a
0: baby.
8: It's kind of like a weird tomato pie. So you got to be like wanting to eat a lot of veggies.
3: When I asked my coworkers at HRN to tell me their thoughts about Chicago-style deep dish, I got a range of responses. Many of them had strong opinions about the pizza that the Windy City is known for.
2: I think it's an abomination.
3: Deep dish pizza is delicious. It is entirely too filling It's criminal that they give it to you as this huge thing.
8: Like, fine, if you like it, I'm fine with you eating it, but don't tell me that's pizza, because it's not pizza.
3: Hearing their opinions, I started to wonder why so many people see a dichotomy between the two styles of pizza. I mean, you know, what's the term now that, you know, haters are going to hate? Emmett Burke is the owner of Emmett's in Soho. Emmett is one of the few people brave enough to make Chicago deep dish pizza in New York. I talked to Emmett to get an insider's perspective on the divide between the two pizza styles.
1: There's just kind of this fun kind of, I don't know, competition with New York and Chicago in general.
3: Despite the long-standing debate, the pizzeria owners themselves don't always have the same territorial attitude about pizza. When I visited his restaurant, Emmett was there with Scar Pimentel, owner of Scar's Pizza. Even though Scar makes a New York-style pizza, he says he can appreciate his friend's deep dish. I like it.
0: If it's done, it's done well. <laughs> so if it's not done well, I'm not a big fan, but if it's done well, like, fortunately for me, my, my friend makes probably the best in... I know I see biases with friends, but I think he personally makes the best version of it.
3: Just as pizzeria owners can find common ground, there might be more similarities between the pizza of the two cities than most New Yorkers realize. Chicago has its own version of thin crust pizza. You know, we serve deep this year, but we also serve Chicago style thin crust, right? Which
1: is uh, kind of the style. Of pizza that most people eat in Chicago. You know, deep dish is, is a lot of fun. and There's kind of a novelty aspect, but I, am um, you know, ate a lot of thin crust pizza, Chicago-style thin crust pizza, you know, tavern-style, real cracker thin,
3: you know, cut into, cut into squares, and, you know, it's a fun, um, that's a fun pizza to eat. Emmett cares deeply about both styles of Chicago pizza, and while it isn't easy to make them both in New York, that challenge is part of the reward for Emmett.
1: If you can make it here, you make it anywhere. You know, they didn't make it easy opening up a Chicago-style pizzeria in New York. You know, I mean, like, a lot of people, you know, wanted to hate it. And, you know,
3: you kind of endear yourself to, you know, people by, by doing something that, that's good and special. Everyone has their own take on who makes the best pizza. Even if that argument can get heated, it also inspires people like Emmett and Scar to make the best pizzas they can and to make their cities proud.
6: That's our show. For next week's episode, we hope you can listen fireside with some hot cocoa. It's going to be freezing. Special thanks this week to Jessica Kreinchich, Nicole Cornwall, H. Conley, and Luke Griffin of Bushwick Podcast. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production this week by Kevin Chang Barnum. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meetin 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meatin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.
12: Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about HOST, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27, 2020 at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my All in the Industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind the scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format, featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Nieporent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobileni, JJ Johnson, and Jeff Gournier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. We are offering a special early bird ticket price until November 30th, so don't miss out. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks.